This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm joined tonight, as always, by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening to you all. Are you ready for an hour of film criticism goodness? Uh-huh. I'm ready. Mm, Goodness. Mm. Now, on our show tonight, we're going to take a look at the much-anticipated New Zealand film Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, We're also going to continue to work our way through some of Martin Scorsese's films, uh, looking at some of the films that are screening as part of Acme Scorsese exhibition. Tonight, we're going to be discussing The Age of Innocence. But we're going to start now with The Nice Guys. This is the new film by writer-director Shane Black, who, after writing the original Lethal Weapon film in 1987, has become highly celebrated for his contribution to the action genre. This is actually only Black's third film where he writes and directs, after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in 2005 and Iron Man 3 in 2013. The Nice Guys is set in the seedier parts of Los Angeles in the 1970s. It stars Russell Crowe as a tough guy private investigator and Ryan Gosling as a down-and-out private investigator. Uh, As this is a hard-boiled detective film combined with an odd couple buddy cop film, the two PIs eventually end up working together on a missing persons case. And of course that case becomes increasingly convoluted, especially as it starts to involve corporate corruption and pornography. This is a film often played for laughs, this is a film that's frequently very violent how did all the pieces add up for the rest of you? Sorry, before we start, can you say pornography again? That was brilliant. I said that with a lot of relish, didn't I? Verve. Pornography. That was brilliant. I'm, I'm done. You guys, take over. <laughs> no, 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 you go first, really. I, I, don't, I don't know that I have a tremendous amount to say about this film, honestly. It's, uh, See, a uh, lot of people are saying that. When I came out of the screening, the sentiment seemed to be that was an enormous amount of fun, but I don't have much to say about it. I'm not even convinced it was an enormous amount of fun. It was quite good fun. <laughs> uh, watching Russell Crowe played a heavy in a quite sort of heavy set sort of fashion. He really had put on the pounds. Um, uh, Gosling doing some sort of, um, uh, was it almost a bit of a Stan Laurel shtick at times. This seemed to be just riffing on uh, the great silent comedians of yesteryear at, at times. But the uh, whole thing seemed quite uneven to me the, the, they had a nice uh, bounced off one another quite nicely i'd like to look into look try to find some subtext in all of this film and I'd, I'd like to think that any film that has pornography as a key element in it actually has something to say about it, it kind of doesn't that much in this film except that pornography is somehow being used to smuggle in some sort of subversive uh bring the in, uh, evil oligarchs to justice type thing, which doesn't actually make much sense. Uh, a lot of this film made a ton of sense. I think you just hit the nail on the head there. The, the, the idea in this film is it's mocking moral hypocrisy where pornography is being used to undermine corporate corruption and the people who are in charge of this corruption are all anti- porn and anti-vice and saying we must stamp out this filth when what they're doing to the country is far more damaging. I, I think there's a lot of subtext in this film. Well, yeah, but I, it's not very sophisticated. I think if this was somehow set in the current day rather than in a, a time when porn was mainstream, it's... Uh I don't know. I, I, I didn't feel terribly engaged by this film. It probably is reasonably apparent uh, <laughs> in my... Um, it's probably worth uh, reminding listeners that you weren't such a fan of Inherent Vice either. No, that's true. What's yeah, just because of the, the we're talking about the period, the the shtick? The yeah. Well, this this felt very reminiscent 
to me of Inherent Vice. In fact, it felt like Shane Black had almost remade Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in a kind of Inherent Vice milieu. That's sort of how it felt to me a bit, which is not a criticism at all because I loved both of those those films. I think he... It's sort of hard to... Um, impose a kind of an auteur reading on a director who, as you mentioned, Thomas, has only directed... This is his third film. But if you look at or you include his script work as well, I think Shane Black is quite adept at doing buddy films. I mean, uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, Last Boy Scout, Lethal Weapon, obviously, um, you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think he he may have a a limited bag of tricks, but I think his bag of tricks he, he does well. There are a number of set pieces or moments in this film that are distinctively Shane Black in nature. You know, the, the, the wound that Ryan Gosling's character incurs at the beginning or in the early stages of this film is very similar or it occurs at a very similar stage to the one that Paul Robert Downey Jr. gets in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. We have set pieces where we've seen a number of times characters falling onto cars, falling into pools, falling from hotel... You know, and even the shootouts have a similar structure. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily say this is an innovative or a unique break from Shane Black's writing and directorial styling, but I think, for me, it was a really enjoyable romp. I think a lot of that has to do with the the chemistry of the two leads. I think Ryan Gosling is a really exceptional comic performer. You know, even in that... What was that film where um, Emma Stone says, my God, you look like you've been photoshopped. Oh, crazy, stupid, stupid love. love. Yes. Yeah, and he plays a comic role in that. I thought he was really good opposite Steve Carell. And I think he's wonderful here as the kind of... The, the dowdy, doesn't-have-his-shit-together kind of character. And Russell Crowe plays the straight man really well. It's nice to see him in a role where he's not trying to emote he's not trying to you know have the the kind of robin hood-esque speech and and the capital you know capital d drama performance and not singing very importantly the strength of the film and it's largely carried on the back of those two key central performances i i agree i adored this film and the more i think about it the more i'm really kind of quite in love with it and i'm very much looking forward to seeing it again and for me it's it's a real playing through genre and i think the comparison to inherent vice is a great one my thought was this is like the b-grade version of inherent vice in all the best possible ways because i love this hard-boiled shtick and i love the 70s setting so bringing those two things together for me was such a trip and I really enjoyed... I mean, Shane Black is so good at doing the buddy cop thing. I mean, that's kind of his his thing. And every buddy cop films in the last 30 years owe some debt to him. But what he, what he does with this film is both the guys who are the leads embody different versions of the classic hard-boiled detective. So Russell Crowe is the tough brute, sort of a Mike Hammer type or, you know, someone from a Jim Thompson novel where um, Ryan Gosling is very much the pathetic down-and-out alcoholic um, single dad whose daughter is far more responsible and and mature than than he is. Uh, So just seeing those two guys being put on screen together to play off each other was was such a joy. And I love the, I just love the look of it, the, 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 the textures and his attention to detail, the, the glorious collateral damage that's done in this film. There's sort of this gleeful dis- destructiveness uh, that also always maintains a sense of menace. Like, there is a sort of very real threat to the characters in this film, and every now and then it does get quite dark to sort of, you know, maintain that tension. And because of that tension... Uh, the comedy, uh, I think, really works. The other thing I loved about this is it's kind of got, um, I don't know, 
this kind of accidental pie shtick to it as well, which we've got a bit of this inherent vice too, where a lot of the problems that they encounter, a lot of it is solved through good detective work. A lot of it is solved through them just fucking up. Like these two guys do so many stupid mistakes and they often yield results in ways that are just so much fun. So I kind of in, enjoyed the kind of internal logic that this film had as well. Gosling could just almost... It was borderline inspector clouseau at times he was that inept oh, absolutely and, yeah uh, and that's that's fun <laughs> yeah, it's more fun with the accent you know the inappropriate uh, uh accent would that still be funny now yes probably oh, i don't know discuss well <laughs> in terms of the setting I, I did wonder if apart from opening the film up to opportunities in terms of set dressing and production design because it really does have a kind of a wonderful 70s feel in a very different way to inherent vice whether that was there so they could um, play with the permissibility of the sexual politics a little bit more. I'm not sure if, you know, and I think it's done tongue-in-cheek. I don't think this is a film that's exploitative in that way. I think it's kind of a, sort of a knowing wink to the audience, perhaps in, in similar ways to Inherent Vice in some ways. But I wondered whether that era of sort of 70s pornography and the kind of the, the lavish lifestyles of the, of the L.A. I mean, this is another distinctively L.A. film, um, kind of noirish film as well. I wonder whether, the you know, how much the setting and the time period was more about what they could get away with in that context than the politics which seems to be a far more in the background of the film i think like inherent vice it's commenting on the fact that the 70s are often seen as this glorious sort of free love counterculture era but the rot was also setting into the american dream i mean this shot this film starts with a shot behind the hollywood sign before it got repaired so it's decaying and it's falling down it's a very deliberate shot that starts behind the sign and then shows us los angeles and there's a lot of references in this to the car industry that would eventually obliterate detroit i mean the closest this film gets overt winking at you is saying detroit will be fine the car industry is going to do just fine um and then sort of using it you know the, the emergence of the porn industry because that it was a new thing in the 70s it, it was this weird revolution where this very underground city thing suddenly brought in an enormous amount of money and became very very popular and it went mainstream and it's sort of it's still taking us decades now to look into how seedy and destructive some of that was for the people involved and again, it's very telling that the first death that we see on screen is a pornography actor who, who dies in a car crash. She's been forced off the road and she dies in the exact same pose that we see her in a magazine earlier. You know, that there's a young boy who looks at a, a girly magazine. I guess they called them girly magazines back then. <laughs> I've never used that expression in my life. But then when we see her, her, her dead is the exact same pose. And it's, it's, it's kind of confronting because you're looking at the naked body posed in a seductive way and now she's she, she's dead so I, I think there's actually a lot going on in this film yeah i thought that was a really remarkable moment and it's it, very uncomfortable that scene and it was unexpected too because the car crash itself was almost played to comic effect yeah uh, the other point i wanted to sort of pick up on is the casting of kim basinger basinger i never get that right basinger, basinger. let's call it one basinger. of those singer um kimmy b kimmy b vicky vale from batman that's o- how i always think of her and opposite russell crowe we have the pairing again of la confidential i <laughs> yes. think there's some pretty canny casting in terms of that setting as well so uh, you know there's there's some nice odes to the to the genre there's a, a curious conflation of experimental cinema with porn in this film if we recall uh that the, when the web of intrigue is still just being unraveled, we learn of an experimental filmmaker uh, whose film has gone missing. I keep using this term experimental, it keeps cropping up, whereas what they really mean is pornographic. <laughs> yes. 
And and the seventies was a boom time for experimental film for people using the materiality of film to achieve all sorts of peculiar effects, or the materiality of the projection apparatus for all sorts of peculiar projection effects, not necessarily even involving film. And uh, that is quite far removed from this bit of a red herring, or is it just um, somebody who doesn't know their jargon? I don't know, but it, this term keeps coming up, or is it an in joke? Does, does everyone think that uh, experimental film was in fact just a, a byword for getting uh, young nubile types to get their gear off? I think it was a deliberate joke. It just, it just, <laughs> just dawned on me then in terms of contemporary issues in LA. I mean, obviously the Detroit stuff is is very much contemporary relevant mm. in terms of the car industry being dead now in Detroit, or certainly you know on its um, dying gasp. And the porn industry has now predominantly moved from LA to to Florida on the back of the legislation about porn actors having to wear condoms and so on. That, so to speak. So to speak. You know. Um, <laughs> that, that, so that was an LA ruling. So the, yeah, California. Oh. That was, so there's been this yeah, sort of okay. shift. And again, the porn industry is often the focus come election time. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, when you have the district attorneys wanting to make a name for themselves, so they, they play the morality card. So again, I, I guess there's a contemporary parallel going yeah, on. I think the, the film is definitely having a, a go at moral h- hypocrisy when there, there are bigger issues uh, at play. Anyway, the nice guys, you've heard a range of opinions. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Plato's Cave. We're going to talk about Hunt for the Wilder People in just a moment. You're listening to 3 Triple R. Three Triple R. Hunt for the Wilder People is the fourth feature film by New Zealand writer-director Taika Waititi after Eagle vs. Shark, Boy and What We Do in the Shadows. It's an adaptation of the 1986 novel Wild Pork and Watercress by New Zealand author and personality Barry Crump. It's about Hector, a cantankerous older man, played by Sam Neill, and Ricky, a troubled adolescent, played by Julian Dennison. They find themselves on the run from the authorities in the vast New Zealand wilderness. It's another odd couple buddy comedy in its own way. Uh, And not unlike Boy, it does not shy away from more serious subject matter. It's also a proudly and distinctively New Zealand film. So, Cerise, we turn to you as the cave's Kiwi correspondent. Kick off the discussion with what you thought about Hunt for the Wilder People. Oh, look, I adored this film. Uh, I've ad- Actually, I can't say I've uniformly ad- adored his work. Eagle vs. Shark left me a bit cold. I didn't like that at all either. Yeah. No. But Boy is... is <laughs> but boy, boy Onwards. Yeah, Boy Onwards. Yeah. What we do in the shadows. Uh, this, this is more sort of boy territory. Uh, that extremely winning combination of... Um, Quite unforced uh, emotiveness, in fact, but uh, so many laughs as well. And actually just a little bit of violence and some adult themes that are somehow smuggled into, a, I think, a PG-rated film here. It's hilarious. Um, that There are certain little bits and pieces here, um, certain references to things that are so specifically uh, Kiwiana, really, that... Um, I don't think audiences abroad will pick up on them at all, but I also don't think that will much minimise their enjoyment of this film because it's such a romp. And the chemistry between uh, Sam Neill and uh, little... What's his name? It's not so little. Uh, Julian uh, Dennison. Julian Dennison is, is terrific. But then that's also not to overlook the contribution of uh, one other performer whose name escapes me, which you looked up just before, Alex. Uh, She's in Housebound as she well. She's the mum in Housebound. Yeah, um, um, I've gone blank on her name also. Uh, Bella. She played the, uh, yeah. I think, yeah. 
but it, it's just a, a, well it, there's extreme silliness in here but there's very serious somehow smuggles in very serious uh, issues surrounding um, youth who are disadvantaged just through accidents of birth through welfare systems sort of falling through the cracks uh, who, for whom little hope is given uh, and then uh, well in this film a comically inept uh, and sort of Tommy Lee Jones out of the fugitive-esque um, welfare force trying to track down a bad kid once he goes missing a terrible kid He's bad a bad egg. egg yeah bad egg <laughs> this litany of uh transgressions he's achieved at his young age is hilariously banal at the very beginning and and yeah we're, we're trying to be told that he's just bad he's, he's beyond hope and um that's obviously absurd it's truly mocking the uh, the idea that any kid is somehow just a bad seed let's say and uh yeah um th- throughout this there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh New Zealandiana poked fun at uh Barry Crump I ought to explain a little is, is a huge personality in New Zealand he, he's deceased for some time but it was an incredibly popular figure not just a literary figure but this sort of cult bushman type figure and uh not only are there direct allusions to him in the narrative of this in that uh, a four-wheel driver is named crumpy um <laughs> that he, he was actually uh he, he was used to sell toyota four-wheel drives in <laughs> right. new zealand and there are some very comical ads you'll find on online very easily where barry crump and some dopey city slicker get in a four-wheel drive with him and as he just goes bush bashing and takes him down some incredibly inhospitable terrain and somehow survive and that's referenced a few times in the in the film and, and all sorts of other little kiwi things but really um well i don't think this film could have come from anywhere else it's still going to be enjoyed and in fact demonstrably is being enjoyed by people everywhere like you guys am i I not right i adored it i absolutely adored it i think i have to say from the outset that it contains my second favorite burger ring joke Uh. and um (laughs) that's a sentence i never thought that i'd say second yeah there's a mccallough sketch do you remember the mccallough sketch where he um does francis ford coppola's (laughs) dracula in sea change there's a really high quality and it's it's I don't want to diss this film. It's brilliant, but yeah, I'm afraid that the, the burger ring joke is second to the McAuliffe. I'm really glad that we've gone on this particular yeah, sorry. tangent. Yeah, my bad. Um, to this film's credit, when the burger ring scene also mentions twisties, Coke Zero. It does. It's not, it's not <laughs> just specifically. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that it gets is mentioned. Ma- it is a majestic <laughs> scene. I don't want to majestical. undermine the, It majestical, is a majestical yes. scene. This is all good because... We're just going to quote the film and giggle. That's all we're going to do We're not now. doing the review in, yeah. in haiku, so I think that that's a step forward. Um... I'm just really proud that I've talked about the film this long without collapsing into hysterical Sam Neill fangirl <laughs> mania. So somebody take over before I start. Well, Josh just did that. Groan, I need like so. a smelling salt. He's. Div- I mean, I'm. I'm fond of Sam it's Neill. The beard, at the best isn't it? Of times. Last week it was Chris Christopherson. He's mm. something special in this film. He's. I mean, he's having a good year. He's having a great year. Mm. I'm, I'm Every having year a, good is a great year. year. <laughs> 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 Discuss. Just, do you want to? I was just having a quick a moment, moment with, yeah. the, with the smelling salts. So. Sam Neill is sensational in this film. I mean, he, he's just a consistently strong actor. He has been since day one. But I don't know. There's just a whole new dynamic he brings to this role. There's real joy in it, and it's it's it could be a part that could be played overtly for laughs and be a caricature. But he really captures that kind of gruff, grumpy you know, cantankerous old bastard. But I think from the second he enters the frame, you know, yeah, this guy's got a heart of gold down there. And not a cheesy, corny way either. And it's a really beautiful relationship that develops between him and and, and Ricky, this really lovely friendship and mutual respect that he's not 
overtly spoken. It's just there in, in glances and body language. And then both, you know, this, this very experienced actor and this very young actor carry it off magnificently. And I think a lot of that has to do with... Taika Waititi's skill with script and direction and it's something that I think has been most evident since Boy. You know, I think he's, his, his approach to comedy has changed a little since Eagle vs. Shark and I'm sure he's worked on the Concords. He may have worked as a, a writer on, on some of those. I'm not sure I'd have to check but it's, it's about pathos. It's about real characters imbuing them with real emotions and drawing the comedy from that. Well, the comedy works because they're not caricatures. It's why Boy was such a, an incredibly moving film as well as a laugh out loud film and I felt the same about this you know there are moments where he manages to drip feed exposition in, in Boy he used flashbacks and, and gradually we get an understanding of Boy's background and his relationship with his father through flashbacks leading to a quite a traumatic revelation towards the end of this film he does a different approach here in the sense that that Ricky talks you know in, in moments about or alludes to moments from his past and what he may have experienced in previous foster homes and, and care facilities and so on and people he's met along the way it, it, just enough to give the audience the sense to fill in the blanks and they're quite impressive moments captured in what on the surface could have just been a, a farcical and, and lovely romp of a of a sort of buddy movie but there's an incredible skill that he has on on being honest with his characters and consistently managing to switch from laugh-out-loud comedy to, oh, I'm getting a little choked up. It's a skill that I think is is pretty unique, actually, not just in terms of, you know, New Zealand, Australian, you know, this neck of the woods, but broader. I don't think there's too many filmmakers working now who have the skill to pull off what he does in this film. I think there's a real absence of any sense of being didactic. Um, There's a real sincerity. And and I think that what runs through this and what we do in The Shadows um, is there's a really fundamental sense of joy, not just in terms of comedy and the construction of, of how that material is delivered, um, but just the joy of making a film and working with people who look like they're having fun. Like these really, it's just a joyful experience. It's a joyful story. It reminded me at times of um, Roald Dahl, of, I mean, taking away the kind of cultural specificity to New Zealand. It, it, it seemed to have a really similar, not not style of comedy but sense of joy and playfulness not just with words but with images and and i mean that's that's kind of the the level that it took me to yeah and yet there is that definitely a macabre and unsentimental (laughs) aspect to this film and there's there's some violence and and, um some things done to animals which uh the film doesn't flinch from which are just part of everyday bush life um but we city folk we're we're you know we're not accustomed to seeing this all that often necessarily i've forgotten uh, just how nasty the spectacle of f- farm life can be. Just the matter of fact, uh, you know, you, well, you've got to survive when you're in a remote part of the middle of the North Island somewhere. So various critters that uh, um, become game in the course of this film as the various folk in it become survivalists, including an actual <laughs> total fr- fruit bat type survivalist. just getting flashbacks to the yeah. piggyback yeah. scene. He's piggybacking yeah. the piggy. Yeah. Uh, so, well, the film doesn't flinch away from the fact that these introduced animals in New Zealand are a real menace. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Cerise, but a lot of New Zealanders don't really have a lot of time for things like possums and, and wild boars. Like, oh, they, they need to be eradicated. Well, there's yeah, <laughs> one really hilarious montage there of, of uh, kill and um, finishing with a minor bird, which just <laughs> had, had me losing it completely because... Uh, yeah, utterly despised um, bird that uh, you know, is comically ludicrous as something to take a shot at as well and think you're going to eat, um, get any sort of sustenance from. Uh, there's, there's, I'm speaking of vaguely uh, foodie 
sounding type things. This film also reminded me a lot of a, a great New Zealand uh, film from the mid-80s, Goodbye Pork Pie. I don't know if you know this at all. Don't know it at all, no. A huge ca- a caper film. Uh, folks uh, hop in a mini and, and just try to avoid the police across almost the entirety of New Zealand. And it's, uh, especially towards the end of this film, that's quite reminiscent of that. It's definitely actually tipping the hat to that as two unlikely types together. Uh, some vehicular mayhem and lots of laughs. Uh, yeah, terrific, terrific. There's a, I think this hopefully will encourage people to go and look at some of the, the early days of the, the great New Zealand film revival in the 70s, which Sam Neill was an integral part of as a young man. Uh, Roger Donaldson's first film, Sleeping Dogs, really kick-started things about 1977 or so. Um, but then look, there are these great films from the 80s, especially Goodbye Pook Pie, which I adore, which used to turn up on TV here once in a blue moon. Hysterically funny. I um yeah look I, I mean I'm just going to reinforce what everyone has kind of said about this film it it, it, it handles the material so beautifully and seamlessly how it mo- moves between um I guess tonal registers just so so perfectly um and and I think that's uh, I think it's that sincerity that counts because a lot of the humour in this is, is actually kind of dorky at times as well but they're playing it with such affection for the material you're on their side like at no point are you cynical about the humour in this film you're on the side of this film right away but yeah i mean scenes like when ricky mentions a friend of his he knew from one of the foster homes and we don't get much information but just a little information he gives you fills you with absolute dread and despair and 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 grief it's a really powerful moment and there are other traumatic scenes in the film but you know to the director's credit they pick up again with humor that doesn't overshadow or nullify what's happened before but it gets you back into the good mood while still respecting you know the, the more serious stuff it's just beautiful handling of material and something you said at the very start cerise is this is so kiwi this is so new zealand they haven't diluted the accents they haven't diluted the cultural references and i think this is actually something that new zealand often has the edge of over australian films new zealanders are so proud of their product and they know that that's what international audiences are going to be interested in I think sometimes in Australia we try to water down our own identity to try to make it more marketable to US or increasingly now China, actually, where in, in New Zealand they, they kind of know that if you just go 100% this country, that's what international audiences are interested in. It's that difference. It's that diversity. And we get up to speed with the vernacular so quickly. I mean, I, I didn't feel lost in this film. I just fa- felt exhilarated that I was learning all these funny new words and attitudes. You know, part of the fun was its kiwiness. We've given so much credit to so many people involved in this, but I think... Um, what we all keep coming back to and what I, who I think really needs to be underscored is Julian Dennison yep. himself. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how old that child is. He is remarkable. He's 37. <laughs> <laughs> all those years of experience really pay it's off. like Mickey Rooney. <laughs> well, he, he, he had a small role in Paper Planes, the Australian film. Oh, and did he? Yeah, he stole every scene of that as well. Like, you know, my biggest criticism of Paper Planes was I wanted more of that kid. Because this is, I mean, <laughs> Sam Neill... Obviously, I might be a little biased, but he's kind of amazing. But um, it's only his third Denison film. is just, he just holds this together. I mean, yep. it's a remarkable performance from any actor, but from, from somebody that young, it's incredible. I was just thinking before when you were talking about the cultural reference and, and how the film is distinctively Kiwi, and yet it's managed to reference cultural sort of um, elements from outside uh, New Zealand cinema. I mean, th- there's a sequence in here when they're walking through snow and that culminates in a extraordinary 360-degree pan, and I think it circles a number of times, which felt like a, a take from um, McCabe and Mrs Miller. I mean, it felt like they were doing Altman, but in a way that didn't dilute 
the the context, the setting, and, and there are so many odes to different genres here. But again, it doesn't lose any sense of coherence. I think this is a really extraordinary film on so many levels. <laughs> I think we're all very smitten with Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, you know, just to channel an Australian icon, do yourselves a favour. <laughs> <laughs> get some burger rings and go. <laughs> get some burger and some LMP twisties. Avoid the door with the vegetables. <laughs> uh, don't be an egg. Go and see this film. Three, triple, ah. And our final segment here on Plato's Cave on Three Triple R, we're going to talk about another one of the films playing as part of the Scorsese exhibition that opened at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image last week. And, yeah, we're going to continue looking at a number of the films screening in the Essential Scorsese Selected by David Stratton program. And we're going to focus on some of the films that don't get talked about as much as the likes of, you know, your taxi drivers, Raging Bulls and Goodfellas. So tonight we're going to look at The Age of Innocence, Martin Scorsese's 1993 film adaptation of Edith Wharton's 1920 novel about New York upper-class society in the 1870s. Too many dates there. Daniel Day-Lewis plays Newland Archer, who is about to marry the naive and respectable Mae Welland, played by Winona Ryder. (sighs) When Mary's... I'm going to do that sound in a moment. When Mary's cousin, Countess Eleanor Olenska, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, Mm. returns to New York after leaving behind an unhappy marriage in Europe. Newland is struck by her defiance of social conventions and soon falls deeply in love with her. Now, along with regular collaborators, cinematographer Michael Bauhaus and editor Thelma Schumacher, Scorsese creates a film that masterfully represents the hidden and unspoken passion of characters who must constantly repress their true feelings in a world ruled by social conventions and etiquette. I don't know about the rest of you, but I haven't... This was the first Scorsese film upon release that I saw in the cinema way back in 1993. And I think I went because I had a thing for Michelle Pfeiffer. I wasn't quite as cine-literate as I like to think I am now. So this is my first revisit after all that time. What about the rest of you? Was this your the first time you'd seen it or the first time you've seen it since the 90s? I'm distracted because I'm looking at Josh's notes and it just says in capital letters, Winona, and about 50 <laughs> exclamation marks. As long as it doesn't say Wino forever. <laughs> Too yeah. soon, Thomas. Yeah. Almost a well, a very similar story to yours, Thomas. I saw this in 1993 at um, good old Mornington Cinema, which I think is still going. <laughs> I went to Chadson Shopping Centre. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, and sure, truly it was an age of innocence. Well, unlike Johnny Depp, I still have my Winona Forever tattoo. It's just um, it's inscribed on my heart. I'm going to start talking about Sam Neill again. (laughs) Let's talk about The Age of Innocence. This this film blew my mind watching it again recently. I I don't think I fully appreciate... I I remember at the time having a sense of this is a cut above the rest. When you you see period films, especially all the Merchant Ivory stuff, which was fine, but I remember thinking there's something very modern about this film and re-watching it again over the the weekend. um, That modern sensibility and that Scorsese sensibility is really there in force. And it, it was really good watching it having watched Russian Ark again so soon because the cinematography really reminded me of that floating through this you know the space and making sure that we capture all the small details all the ornamentation or all the paintings and I think you know Scorsese is a big fan of the leopard which is also about the aristocracy dying and I think that's very much captured in this but that constant moving camera and that subjective camera that he's known for in films like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull we really capture here that this world of 
almost banality where everyone is sort of obsessed with social graces and yet there is this simmering passion underneath and my god you you, you feel it through the film style this reminded me of something I've seen recently. I, I've been binge-watching films by the great Polish filmmaker Valerian Borowczyk ahead of a, a season of his films at the Melbourne Cinematheque. And he made a lot of period films uh, and a lot of quite bonkers films, especially to deal with repression and um, uh, sexual uh, mm, peccadilloes that the, the world somehow cannot accommodate. Or, uh, and uh, particular films was uh, Blanche and the Beast, watched recently have a lot of interiors like this film a much more static camera but a similar sense of stifling environments of interiors but also the interiors representing the next area the, the, the world beyond the world of social mores and um niceties and etiquette and scandal and uh this, this film even explicitly reminded me of some Borovchik early on where we see opera glasses um, uh, at, at the opera and binoculars being used and there are these beautiful whip pans combined with dissolves which are straight out of the Borovchik animation handbook because he was a, a brilliant animator before he started making live action films and I've been thinking about Jan Schwankmeier a lot lately too because Schwankmeier's crowdfunding his final film and folks you've got to get onto that um, similar techniques uh, the more I watch Scorsese as I think probably everyone here does the more you see that he has plundered all of cinema uh, because he, he is the ultimate cinephile filmmaker uh, post the Nouvelle Vague I mean of course we knew that all Goddard and all that his chums who he wasn't necessarily long chums with uh, long time chums uh, you know, they, they were the first perhaps generation of really cinephile filmmakers Scorsese then took that uh, ran with it in a sort of American context and yeah the more you watch anyone else's films the more you somehow see it reflected in Scorsese at least that's my experience I find that really super interesting because my experience with revisiting this film um, obviously talking about this in the context of the Scorsese exhibition at Acme we're talking about authorship um, I was thinking a lot of a different kind of authorship. I was thinking a lot about Edith Wharton and the adaptations of her books into films. And it reminded me of a film that I, I used to love and, and it just sort of fell off my, 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 my little memory box. It just sort of fell out, um, which is another uh, Wharton adaptation that came after this film by Terence Davies called The House of Mirth in 2000, Julian which I Anderson. still think is the best yeah. Julian And I think it's the best film Julian Anderson's ever done. I think she had a... I know that she's had a kind of renaissance in the last couple of years, but there was a period where she did that. She did a film called Straight Heads, an incredible rape revenge film that it's all but forgotten. House of Mirth yeah, it's is a great just film, unbelievable. Yep. I honestly, I mean, this, not to diss Age of Innocence, obviously, I mean, the set design in this, I believe it won an Dante Oscar. Ferretti, yeah. Um, you know, the editing, the, these flashes of colour, the, the cinematography, I mean, the new, it, it's just divine. But... I honestly think that this is... I mean, Wharton did this later in her career when she was feeling... A, and she herself said, you know, a little more soft and nostalgic. House of Mirth is the one with bite. I actually went back and revisited House of Mirth, the Davies film, after watching Age of Innocence. Um, and for me, just personally, I mean, there was no question of which film had the greatest impact on me. And that's not to diminish Age of Innocence. I just think in terms of source material, I think Age of, I think House of Mirth is just a bit more... It's way darker. So the kind of subtlety of these sort of, you know, the hypocrisies 
you know, the sort of social hypocrisies at work in Age of Innocence really come to the fore in a really miserable, horrible way in House of Mirth that just kind of appealed to me. I, the one thing that surprised me is uh, I remember when Age of Innocence came out that the focus was very much on Winona Ryder's performance. I'm going to be really careful because I am punching distance from Josh right mm-hmm. now. He will hit me. I was actually mm-hmm. really blown away by uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's performance in yeah, this she's film. She's extraordinary. I thought I'm she was probably finding... the strongest performer. Yeah. Um, I think that that, that, I, don't, I, didn't I don't think remember that's controversial. That. Yeah, well, no, no, it felt a little flat to I me. See, I had the opposite. I don't remember having thinking that much of Ryder in this film, but I think she's really strong in this film in portraying someone who's just a little bit a bit passive and, and there's nothing really going on there. Um, although she has hidden uh, a real hidden sting in her. I, I think she actually does a really fine job portraying a character who is, who is not very confident. I think she's performing her own role in the same way that... Um, the Newland Archer character is. I think she's the way she performs the innocence, the kind of the the naive towing the society line. I think as the performance evolves and the narrative evolves, you start to see that she's been performing in much the same way that he has. That's very true. And, yes, and they're, they're they're both adhering to certain social codes. And I think it, you know, again, I made this point last week that in the maelstrom of the kind of the machismo um, canon of, of Scorsese film criticism and review, films like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and Age of innocence often get overlooked and i think there's some really interesting gender stuff here on the level of femininity and social i mean he really spends a lot of time with um with Pfeiffer's character and and writers towards the end as well to try and broaden the um i guess the audiences I used the term last week alignment and i think it's a really perfect term to talk about scorsese and, and audience interaction in this film and i think yeah i think films like this deserve not just reappraisal but i think it's 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 great that they're, they're being singled out for this season because I think there's a broader Scorsese world that often gets forgotten about. The other thing I wanted to mention, and it gets back to something I mentioned at the start of the show in relation to Shane Black, and I made the criticism, maybe he has a limited bag of tricks and maybe that sounded more unfair than I intended it. I think Scorsese is often seen as a director who has his kind of bag of tricks, but the difference, and it's an unfair comparison, it's maybe arbitrary, but it is the way he varies his stylistic approach depending on the subject matter. He doesn't use the same tricks film in, film out. And you mentioned it at the top of the review, Thomas, in terms of the camera work and the dissolves, the way in which this film, through those series of cross-dissolves, you know, it's the, probably the, the dominant transitional mode used throughout this film by Schoonmaker and, and Scorsese, gives the impression of moving through this environment, the, the slow drain of time as opposed to any number of his other films where there's it's far more abrupt sensibility. You still get that interest, though, in ritual, don't you? Ritual and family and society and these codes of behaviour that people have to adopt. I mean, again, that's so central there in his gangster films. And also, this is such a New York film. I mean, you know, New York is the, the, the city he's obsessed with. And what I really like about the interiors of this film is we often see them shot with vines or, or ferns, and it's this constant idea of New York as the jungle, which is symbolism that's being used... As, depict New York since day one in in cinema and and I think in this film it's used to show us, and I think there's even a line from the novel that's used in the film, that they're only one step away from completely falling out of civilization, and that's why they also desperately adopt this behaviour. They're so close to reverting to animals. Well, we see, too, these grand homes, these mansions, are actually often extremely isolated. Like New York might have already been a grid of streets all numbered nice and neatly, but these houses are all miles from one another. Yeah. They're in, might be a jungle in 
inside, but outside it's a wasteland. And yeah. uh, you know, in a way, that's a, a psychic landscape as much as it is an actual um, physical landscape. The hierarchies of power, I think, are super interesting as well, in the, especially in reference to uh, the grandmother, I believe. Is There's, the Miriam Magul? Who's, I think, really... I mean, this is one of her great perform that, that and Blackadder I think she's Blackadder <laughs> she is genius and the nanny in so uh, Juliet so yeah. let's not forget that <laughs> It's all but she's, a, you know, we have this kind of. She's fabulous, though. Yeah. It's not a mob film, but we do have these power, these hierarchies of power that I think are, are absolutely run through. It, you know, they're a driving fascination of Scorsese's, and I always come back to the, you know, people that really over not overhyped, but that much celebrated um, switch in in voiceovers in Goodfellas. I'm really fascinated. One of the things that really intrigued me with this film was that it was a female voiceover all the way through the film. Joanne Woodward, yeah, an external yeah. voiceover as well, yeah. which so is. It's, very much um it's very much the kind of in a way it's daniel day lewis's character's story but the the female voiceover really acts in opposition to that and i think it adds to that wharton that presence of wharton um in a really important way yeah that's a really good point is is that the wharton voice do you think do you you sense that's the extra textual level from the the novel yeah Yeah. i mean i I haven't read the novel in years but it it certainly has that feeling that it's you know this is an adaptation of a novel 99 percent sure that's the case or or, or the narration in the film is directly from the novel so it's taking the author's voice and I, i think it works magnificently yeah. It's, it's the only Scorsese film off the top of my head that I can think where he's used a voice. I mean, it's voiceover is very common in his films, but where he takes a, the perspective of someone outside of the the narrative proper. I can't think of another one where he's done that. Yeah, I think he's you're one right. of the few directors who pulls off voiceover in a really strong way. Given you know that cliche of film school that you know voiceover, you, you never do it. You never do voiceover. Actually, Shane Black uses voiceover. We didn't mention this. He, I think he uses voiceover really strongly in a lot of his films. And it's the one downside, I guess, of Nice Guys is that just sort of. Disappears after a wonderful opening. I wish there was more of it. But I I, I love the voiceover in Age of Innocence. I love everything about the Age of Innocence. This film really wound me up tight and kicked me in the guts. And and it it had that kind of chilling ending that a lot of Scorsese films do. You know, the, the heroes don't get to end on the big grand fall from grace we get to see them 30 years later when it's just all fizzled out and it's pathetic and you know this daniel day lewis character you know he's a classic man who does not act he's you know the, the hamlet role he, he inactivity is what brings him down and he's mad and you know he's so frustrating but also you know such a deeply sympathetic character the Age of Innocence, worth seeing on the big screen if you've never seen it before. I, I don't want to play favourites, but I reckon the Australian Centre for the Moving Image will probably do it justice more than Chadson Shopping Centre did it for me in the early 90s. But, you know, don't take my word for it. Uh, you have been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. The Nice Guys is on general release through Roadshow Films. Hunt for the Wilder People is on general release through Madman Entertainment. And The Age of Innocence is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image as part of the Essential Scorsese selected by David Stratton program. Go to acme.net.au forward slash film for details. We're going to be back next week to talk about more film, more Scorsese. It's good night from us. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.